0: Four, in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air, we all cherish our children's future, and we are all mortal.
1: The Interplanetary Podcast.
2: The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts, here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin.
0: What do you think about that quote?
1: (laughs) 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 I'm I'm laughing because there's about seven mistakes in that, but I can't talk. That's brilliant. That's why I'm the editor. John F. Mm -hmm. Kennedy. What a guy.
0: He's kind of the most important president when it comes to space.
1: People can talk the talk, but
0: he really walked the walk, didn't he? He walked the walk. Yes. J.F. Kennedy, the space person's president. Absolutely. I'm going to celebrate a birthday. Oh, yeah. So... Friday, the eighth of June, mm. Giovanni Domenico Cassini. It's his oh, birthday. God. It's his birthday. Sixteen twenty-five, eighth of June. Well,
1: Matt, we have to find out a bit about his life,
0: please. Well, he was obviously a mathematician, astronomer, and engineer. Actually, he was also an astrologer. I know that sounds that's pretty hideous, isn't it? But he Ugh. he kind of started off, you know, doing astrology. It was a big gig back back in the day. Uh, but mm. he eventually kind of realized that that was a bit ridiculous. So, sort of nonsense. A bit yeah. nonsensey. His main thing is he discovered four satellites of Saturn. Yes. So, Lapitus, Rhea, Tethys, and Dion. Which, which is your favorite, Matt? Out of all those, I think Lapitus, because that's 1671, which is exactly 300 years before my birthday.
1: I quite like Rhea. Because it reminds me of the road to hell.
0: Did you know that Chris Rear once joined Dire Straits? Oh, God. And they were known okay. as Diarrhea. <sighs> anyway, but... Uh, we started early today, haven't we? Yeah. So Cassini, obviously, for for astronomers, they'll, they, they know the Cassini division, which is the yes. gap in the rings that you can see from Earth as long as you've got a good enough telescope. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the Cassini division in the rings of Saturn. He discovered that in Absolutely 1675.
1: Mind blowing! That is that that is just crazy, isn't mm. it?
0: And then ten years earlier, he discovered the Great Red Spot on Jupiter as well. God. The GRS.
1: I just can't believe how long ago it was. <laughs> Matt, you know the the world's oldest restaurant mm-hmm. is in Madrid. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name. I, I will get the name, but it's that was I believe 1725 that it opened its doors. And this is 1675. You're talking
0: about. Well, but just think how much we've learned since then about the universe. Like learning about the, just learning about the solar system is like a kind of fairly recent endeavor. I think.
1: Oh, for sure. I just think of the equipment that they had back then, though. I you mean, know? I, I, that's what blows my mind. Yeah, and
0: bear in mind, Cassini—he was a contemporary of Newton. So he Mm -hmm. kind of rejected Newton's theory of gravity, first of all, because he, for some reason he made some kind of measurement that that made the Earth's poles elongated. And it was only Mm. when the French went out and found out that it wasn't that he he kind of went, okay, fair enough, Newton, you win. Conceded. One of the greatest ones that I absolutely love, because I love the story of, of longitude, the Harrison clocks and all that, Mm. But Cassini was the first person to make a successful measurement of longitude using the Galileo method of watching the eclipses of the Galilean satellites.
1: Really? Ah, oh, didn't know yeah. That. So
0: sailors would have had telescopes to actually look at the at the satellites of Jupiter, and yeah, use that as the clock. It's an elaborate clock,
1: that isn't it? Imagine that, Matt. If if one of your family asked you the time, and you went, hang on. Just nip out. <laughs> Just nip out.
0: <laughs> get get on
1: the telescope.
0: Yeah, I think even more amazing they could work out the longitude using that. But yeah, it took a lot of calculations, and often it took so long that you'd crashed on some rocks before you were actually able to do the calculations. Um, God, that's nuts. Do you know Brian May is an expert in the zodiacal light? Which is a is yeah, which is a faint glow that extends away from the sun in the ecliptic plane of the sky. Mm. Cassini was the first person that correctly explained the phenomena back in 1683. It's beautiful. Yeah. So, happy birthday, oh. Cassini. Happy birthday. Ah. Now, I want to talk about another space dude as well who died on the seventh of June. So, as this podcast goes out, it was yesterday that uh, he died in 1826. Okay. And this is another example of how far we've come in astronomy. So he, basically, he, he, was, he made telescopes and he invented the spectroscope, which is basically the way that you can split the sunlight or light into its component parts. So he thought, oh, I bet if you, you know, when you, when you use these spectroscopes on, say, a sodium lamp, you just get one bright band where the sodium is mm. glowing. So he thought. Oh, I wonder if you do the same to the sun. And when he when he did it to the sun, he, he found these dark instead of like a bright line. He found all these dark lines, and so yeah, there are lots of dark lines or absorption lines, as they're called, and they became Fran Franhofer lines. Joseph Ritter van Fraunhofer. That is quite Fraunhofer. The name. Wow, Franhofer was a Bavarian physicist, and yeah, so he. Yeah, imagine that. So he found these absorption lines. Unfortunately he didn't live long enough because he died from consumption to work out what these absorption lines were. But it's how it's how we tell what stars and the sun are made of. Those lines are, of course, give you clues as to the composition of those stars. It's incredible. That is absolutely another dude. When you look at a rainbow, it's got these little transmission lines in it, but you just can't see it because you because our eyes aren't good enough. But They're there. They're there. So, Matt,
1: when you say he died of consumption, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: can you elaborate on that word?
0: Do you know what? I can't elaborate on consumption. It's like everyone in the Victorian era died of consumption, but I don't really know what it is. Does that mean they
1: ate too much?
0: No, No, consumption, I suppose, it must be some form of really easy, curable disease these days. What is consumption?
1: Well, listeners, if you know what consumption is in that context – please tweet us using the hashtag ate <laughs> too much
0: it's not really an astronomy word is it no talking of astronomy words oh yeah it's space word of the week space word of the week do you know what i, I wonder how long we can keep this going but there's got to be hundreds of space words here we go what's the first
1: one then i'm excited egress that's e g r e do you know what
0: an egress is Well, I do, but I don't want to show off. Well, the good thing about egress, and this is the reason why I chose it as the first space word, is because it kind of has two definitions in the world of space that are similar and obviously come from the same Latin. So Latin, uh, ex, meaning to go out, and gradi, meaning to step. So it means to step out. For example... Before launching on a spacecraft, an astronaut might practice emergency egress in case they have to escape quickly, so mm. getting out of the spacecraft. So egress means to get out. So often they use it with things like astronauts because it just sounds cool instead of saying the astronaut came out of the out of the hatch. He like. Egressed from the hatch. That's Yeah, it's rather poetic. Yeah, it's much better, isn't it? But in astronomy... If, if you were to be, if you were watching the transit of Venus, for example, like we did a few years ago. As I do. Yeah, yeah. As it's about to exit the disk of the star it's transiting in front of, the sun in this case, with its Venus, as it's about to leave, that's known as the egress ah. the, of the planet leaving the disk. So yeah, it means to step out.
1: Well, I really like that one. And hey, Matt, yeah? it's a really good time of year to uh, look up and see Venus
0: Yes, if you're in our it,
1: part of the world, isn't it, it? lovely? It's and Jupiter, it's
0: beautiful. They're both very, very bright at the moment. However, yeah. we won't—I don't think—we'll see a transit of Venus again in our lifetime, which is a bit depressing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Anyway, what's happening in the news, Jamie? I'll I'm, I'm make this pretty musk-heavy at the beginning, and I don't mean in a deodorant kind of way.
1: <laughs> get your uh, get your shots of whatever your poison is ready, because
0: yeah. a lot of
1: drinking going on. I mean. Yeah, what, what do you think about this, Matt, his tweets?
0: His tweet. he's gone absolutely mental, that's what's
1: happened. I think he's in love and he's just being <laughs> oh, silly. is that it? He's in love with Grimes, isn't it?
0: Is that what it is? Is he in love? I think so. Oh, yeah. he's lost the plot because he's in love. I just thought it was because... That, that's, my, that's my theory. I, my theory is that he's surrounded himself with yes-men and there's no one left to tell him, Elon, what the heck, anymore.
1: I oh, do you think so? Like the Emperor's new clothes. Yeah,
0: I I genuinely hope that he snaps out of it because it really does have the hallmarks of someone just believing their own hype. I mean he's only a human being, after all. I know we love him, and God does he get mm. stuff done, but but he is only a human being. Like leave it I mean this this one where he where he went <clears throat> You have nano in your bio. That is 100% synonymous with BS. I mean, what the hell? <laughs>
1: well, I, I know, but it is quite funny. It is quite funny. I mean, but He shouldn't really be rising. Surely he's got more important things Th- to do. But I think... It makes him a nice, interesting character, doesn't it? The fact that he just kind of gets involved uh, in these spats. Do you know what?
0: If, if, if he had just left it at that, but he kind of keeps doubling down on, the, on his position and just sort of mm. battering down the hatches until eventually he did some other weird one about, it's all about the Pico scale and the Femto scale. And it's just like, what? Mm. <laughs> it's just like, okay, yeah. okay. And then, and then there's that ridiculous spat he had with the media as well, like whinging about the media and then saying he was going to start Pravda. just like Elon Musk is such a great person to have in control of the press. Not. Mm.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a a funny one. So do you think Musk Musk is losing it? It's okay. I don't think so. He's in love. That's what I I think. And I think he has a few glasses of red. Yeah. And then he gets on Twitter for a laugh.
0: I think Jeff Bezos is going to be laughing his head off in his baron's lair. What? Uh, you reckon uh, stroking uh. a white cat? No, that's it. That's not a euphemism. An actual cat. An actual cat. But Elon Musk did tweet a, a pretty cool tweet.
1: Well, Tintin A and Tintin B, I'm hoping you're going to I, I am.
0: I'm mentioning Tintin A and Tintin B, which we did talk about. Because remember, they they launched back on February the 22nd. Uh, with Spain's Paz satellite, Mm. and they're to test this kind of mega-constellation. That was it. You got excited about the word mega-constellation. I did. Starlink. Starlink. (laughs) Not to be confused with Star-Lord, of course. No, please don't. Starlink satellites. So, yeah, he's saying that that they're being tested and they've got a latency of 25 milliseconds, so that's good enough to play video games. So, you see, one of the problems with, these kind of space constellations to do internet access is uh, the delay, because obviously they're they're so high up, normally in geostationary orbit, that uh, it's like a sort of almost one second, 800 milliseconds of latency to get up to these things. So Mm -hmm. it makes game playing pretty stupid and impractical. Mm -hmm. The idea is to get these much, 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 much lower, so that Starlink satellites, instead of being up in geostationary orbit, They're down at only about seven hundred and forty-six miles or one thousand two hundred kilometers, which means you can reduce that uh, latency right, right down. But it's still nowhere near the latency of five milliseconds that you get with like really high quality broadband.
1: Yeah, I mean, keep up, yeah, keep
0: up, mask. keep up, Granddad. (laughs) But but it could be good. I mean, it'll never. Presumably, you know, just purely on the maths, it can never get that good. So, but Mm. but it's good enough for a lot of things. You know, there's you don't you don't particularly need great latency for watching movies because it just buffers up. It's true enough. The most ridiculous story I saw this week is, (laughs) I think it was in the Wall Street Journal where they said SpaceX has indicated it won't launch a pair of space tourists to loop around the moon this year. It's just like, well, we know, (laughs) don't we? Don't we know? Because he's already said he's not human rating the Falcon Heavy, so we we already know that. There's a site. Yeah, what a surprise. But then it did go to say that Mr. Gleason, James Gleason, who is a spokesman for SpaceX, said they're still planning to fly private individuals around the moon, and there's growing interest from many customers. Yes, yeah. yeah. I
1: mean, of course, there, of course, there is lots of interest. <laughs> I don't think anyone would sort yeah. of turn down a trip around the moon, would they? No, it's just ridiculous you know, thing to say.
0: Ridiculous. But uh, the, mm. the the article is quite interesting because it does go on to sort of explain how actually there's going to be a massive drop in satellite kind of uh, orders next year, like as in they're going to have a, a bumper year this year, but next year it's going to drop by about forty percent in 2019, and that's really bad compared to their kind of documents that that they released to their investors. So there mm. you go, which is what we were talking about when I went to that. Um, UK satellite launch is that whole right. idea of just because you build a, a a space launch system doesn't mean that the market's actually going to exist.
1: If you build it, they might, it might not, not come. come yeah,
0: <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, let's get into Ace News. Some really, really genius news to to follow up go. from the fact that Mars Curiosity's drill was working. Oh, it, yes. So the lab is working as well. So they, they, they've, they've developed a new technique to get the samples off the drill over into the lab. Whoa. On Mars, we have to try and estimate visually whether this is working just by looking at images of how much powder falls out, said John Michael Murikian of JPL. We're talking about as little as half a baby aspirin worth of sample mean that's not much no, exactly. if they put too much in it, clogs it up and too little, then you won't get an accurate analysis so it's it's like all these things are amazing, aren 't they that they' they 're trying to do these things by having an exact copy of the rover on Earth and then running the program and letting it do it on Mars
1: mm. millions
0: of miles away and uh, yes. and, it, and it working it's just absolutely incredible
1: it's uh, I, I just I just love it, and i can 't wait. For the soil samples, Matt. If
0: if we do a sample return, that's gonna be absolutely epic. That is the one, isn't it? Sample return mission.
1: We'll 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 sort that yeah, out yeah, for yeah, 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 yeah. Big time. So what else is happening, Matt? New Horizons?
0: New Horizons, indeed. It's just about to come out of hibernation to get ready for its MU sixty-nine flyby in January.
1: I love the idea of it coming out of hibernation like a bear. It's been asleep for a few months.
0: Again, again, it's incredible, isn't it? It's so many billions of miles away now, yet there's this little computer that gets woken up by a little command and then boots up. I mean, how many times do you switch on your PC and it doesn't quite boot up properly because of some recent update? And you've got that kind of stress, except it's really hard to turn it off and back on again when it's billions of miles away.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh,
0: Obviously, this is a critical moment in the mission. But yes, so eventually it's going to get to Thule mm. Island. That's that's off the map. It's far now. It's far. It really is far, and it's going to be by far the furthest away flyby ever performed by a spacecraft. It's going to be very God, exciting
1: indeed. That's really exciting. It's got
0: a bit of UK space news. Go on. So here I am in Guildford, and I'm talking about Surrey Satellites, who've been a, who've awarded launch services to uh, Firefly aerospace. So that's pretty interesting. Uh. So yes, so Firefly is pleased to enter into an LSA, well, that's a launch service agreement with SSTL, to provide up to six alpha launches from twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty two, said Tom Ooh. Markusic, who's the CEO of Firefly. Uh-huh. You know, Surrey satellite built satellites are gonna go up on this new Firefly Aerospace Company's uh rocket, the Alpha. Well,
1: that's nothing but good news. Yeah. Congratulations, sorry satellites.
0: Well done, old beans in China. There's a couple of Chinese news, actually. Mm. There was obviously we did talk I did mention it in the last podcast, the Long March two D that's gonna that uh, flew up with the Gawa 6 ah, yes. and the Luigi one. Uh, That that went up successfully on Saturday. That was nice. But they have lost contact. So one of the most important satellites that they've um, launched recently is the Jiao satellite, which is is functioning normally and made it to the Lagrange Point 2. As you know, my favorite Lagrange Point. The only Uh, one. And that's going to be the one that uh, talks to the Changi 4 lunar mission. So that's the one that Mm. talks to this lander that's going on the... On the on the far side of the moon, I'm so close to saying dark side of the moon again. On the oh, far side, far side of the moon.
1: <laughs>
0: you uh, almost uh, did, and uh, yeah. So, but these, but on board that same uh, launch, piggybacking was a couple of satellites, DSLWP A1 and A2, which are wavelength pathfinders. But it looks like they've lost mm. they've lost contact with one of those. So that's a bit booze. Uh, oh well. Oh well Don't cry. Oh well. Uh and of course we saw the return, as promised on the last podcast, of NASA's astronaut Scott Tingle. Oh my mate. Do, Scott. do you know what he said about his legs when he landed? Don't say he said they're tingly. I think I think he did. Yeah, something like that. Oh. Anton Shkaplerov and of course Noroshigi Kanai Uh all all came back and they're all fine and Fine and dandy. Welcome home, lads. Uh, Hopefully, when this podcast goes out, we'll have seen the launch up of three replacement astronauts, including our European ESA astronaut, Alexander Guest. Very exciting, that one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Any other space news? Uh, Well, NASA has
1: selected a science mission map Mm -hmm. planned for launch in 2024 that will sample, analyze, and map particles streaming to Earth. From the edges of interstellar space.
0: Whoa! So this is IMAP, IMAP.
1: interstellar mapping and acceleration pro
0: Whoa! Uh. So yeah, that that's help us to understand the boundary of the heliosphere. That is wonderful, isn't it? It's the great big bubble that surrounds mm. the sun, and it's where basically the sun's solar particles are going out, and the and the rest of the galaxy's solar part, particles are coming in. And it's like a little bubble where they where they all collide and meet. That is. It sounds like a beautiful place to be. Well, I don't know. It's It might be a really dangerous place to be. I'd imagine. I imagine that. Yes, yeah, but Matt, you know what
1: my bloody middle name is.
0: Is it bloody? Jamie bloody Franklin. Because that's what I hear everyone saying. Oh, it's danger. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh oh, yeah. oh goodness. There's five uh solar terrestrial probes or stps in mm. the nasa portfolio and they are stereo which is uh, which is a european space agency and nasa collaboration so that uh, mm. that's that's like two satellites that are out looking at the sun. There's the Magnetospheric Multiscale, or MMS, mission, and that's the yes. uh, Fundamental Process of Magnetic Reconnection near Earth. Uh, HINODE, which is a Japanese uh, collaboration with NASA, mm. is a timed T-I-M-E-D, the Thermosphere, Ionosphere, Mesosphere, Energetics, and Dynamics, which is a NASA, God, yeah, the outer layers of Earth's atmosphere. Ooh.
1: Beautiful words coming out of your mouth, Matt. (laughs)
0: Again. Again. So, yeah, that's nice, isn't it? I didn't didn't realise that that was part of a kind of programme, the STP, the Solar Terrestrial Probes. Hmm. I might write to them, see if we can get an interview. With all all five of the probes themselves, just get them in. I mean, why not? Oh, man, we've got some interesting interviews coming up, so stay tuned, everyone. And thank you very much to our patrons for making this sort of thing happen. Yes, without
1: you... We couldn't keep doing this stuff.
0: Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. And we'll give you a shout out at the end. Oh, will we ever. Keep your ears out for that. Another NASA, great NASA mission, one of my absolute favorites, mm. is Dawn. Oh, yes. So Dawn is going to, uh, very soon now, is going to start um, getting closer and closer to Ceres. So it's going to get go much, 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 much lower and start collecting mm. even more beautiful information it's going to get 10 times closer in fact. So 10, ten times. times closer to, to the surface. Uh, and so cool. it's going to collect gamma ray and neutron spectra. And so it's going to really, really like dig into what series is actually made from the, well, the uppermost uh-huh. layers. And so, yeah, that, and uh, that, that's going to be it, and that's going to be the end of the mission as it runs out of fuel. But that's really exciting, isn't it? That is really so exciting. So we're going to see some amazing pictures, I should imagine, from Ceres and Dawn soon. Ceres. I should say Ceres. Ceres and Dawn. Sounds like two say Essex girls yeah. out on the town. Of course, Ceres is the sort of main planet in the asteroid belt, especially in the program. The Expanse It's where one of the, it's where Miller was born. Oh, is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. I've oh, just damn. finished watching it, Jamie. It's, it's worth watching. Yeah. It gets a little bit cheesy at times. <laughs> well, I say a little bit. It gets very cheesy at times, and, and, there's, some, okay, and there's some pretty appalling bits of dialogue, but, but it's, it's, it's watchable. It's good. Well, it sounds like our show.
1: <laughs> 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 they probably got inspired. Um, yeah. So, Matt, what about all this, all this NASA
0: talk? Mm-hmm.
1: What about some Euro well, news?
0: Here's a really ace article. Uh, from satelliteobservation.net, and it and it and it gives you mm. all the slides and the Q and A from this talk that was given by Jean-Marc Astorg, who's the head of CNES, which is the uh, French space agency. Mm. He's basically spent his entire life working on Vega, Ariane Five, and Soyuz in the in French Guiana. Uh huh. And he basically has been laying out the European response to basically reusability and looking at it. And, and it's really, really interesting. Some of the slides and, and some we, of the
1: answers. We love that. Don't we, Matt?
0: Yeah, I know. Absolutely. So it it's kind of, he basically says, ultimately we will have to, to do a choice between an evolution of Ariane six and a brand new launcher to be ready in 2028, 2030. So they've got to turn this thing called Ariane next around really quickly. And, and he's saying that there there was a lot of talk about how you balance the the whole difference between you know a, a expendable launches and 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 reusable launches and it wasn't just as simple as just reusable is best he was saying that there are mm. pros and cons of each of these things but europe needs to get its act together and and uh, sort of get on and develop these things or develop something that works better. It's so a lot of it's around the engines, but there were so many really yes. interesting points that he makes in the questions and answers. So I'm going to put the link to that particular article in the, in the notes. It's well worth looking through. I, l- I actually learned loads from it. It's really good.
1: Matt, could SpaceX share the information? Obviously I'm sure there's some kind of patent, uh, no doubt. But I mean, it's better for the world, isn't it, if we're all using these re- reusable launchers?
0: Do you know what? I don't think they will. You know, they're a commercial company. Uh, that, that's that. Mm. And so, no, it, it's all kind of really proprietary stuff, man. So it, it's like, yeah, they they don't want to they don't want to share it. I guess
1: they just don't think like us, Matt. Eco eco warriors of the solar system. Yeah. <laughs> no no, are, no. i mean
0: it? elon musk is making he's thinking how much money can i actually make you know and well, you have got to have some cash for his crazy
1: ideas. Yeah.
0: <laughs> now one of the one of the little craft that they're thinking of making and this is in 2020 2021 is a thing called callisto mm. which will be almost mm. identical to spacex's grass grasshopper and uh, he made no qualms about that so he goes callisto is grasshopper the Chinese are also building a similar prototype I have no problem saying we didn't invent anything (laughs) my lord (laughs) so so, yeah there's some really interesting things and uh, as like someone said what about 3D printing and he was saying oh yeah how much the in Ariane 6 the auxiliary power unit is 3D printed and has saved unbelievable amounts of money by having it 3D printed so that's really really interesting wow but that's a great article I will check uh, it
1: out please check it out thank
0: you now, Christopher Riley, all of you listeners out there will have watched at least one of the films or TV programs For sure. that he's made. He has made absolutely loads. <laughs> like, he has. Like most, It seems like most of the kind of BBC programs about space, he's had a hand in in some way or another, mm. even some science fiction ones. I mean, The Planets is a really big one. That was a massive program at the time, and was one of the first to kind of really have that fantastic graphics that 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 were awe inspiring, beautiful stuff. Yeah, his, but his films that he's most famous for, in the Shadow of the Moon, is incredible, an absolutely incredible uh, film. Uh, which he then went on to do Moon Machines. So those who've got the Discovery Channel, uh, Moon Machines was one of his, and that was a series. That uh, went that looked at the four hundred thousand engineers that were involved in the Apollo missions. So that's pretty cool. Mm. But he has teamed up with Paolo Nespoli from the European Space Agency to make ah, a, a couple yes, of yes. Uh, programs, including First Orbit, which recreates Yuri Gagarin's uh, Vostok One flight by matching the orbit using the International Space Station of of Vostok One, uh, and then God yeah, and they released that as the fiftieth anniversary of the. Of, of that uh space flight and so yeah it, that was uh, riley involved with that so yeah he's just and one of my favorite documentaries ever is the one about richard Feynman the fantastic mr Feynman yes unbelievable yes, he made yes, a yes. film about the hubble telescope the fear of 13 is his oh the fear
1: of 13 is is amazing please guys go and check out some of his films you will not regret it He's uh, very, very talented.
0: Very, very talented. I'll tell you what, he was also an absolutely lovely uh, bloke to spend some time with. I really got on with him, and he was just absolutely lovely. And this is a really great interview. I really enjoyed this interview. He made me feel very comfortable. (laughs) You know, when you're talking to someone who's an expert at interviewing people, it can be quite intimidating. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, yes, this guy is a high-quality space filmmaker. Well, I think, I think we should... Shall we just listen We, to we it? should roll the tape. Yeah, day. yeah, yeah. A good day! We're joined by Chris Riley, really excitingly, one of my favourite science filmmakers. Hello, Chris.
2: Hi, good to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background first? You've been involved with science films and science documentaries and writing for a long time. Can you tell us how you actually got into that and what was sparked it all off?
2: Mm, yeah, well, so I suppose as a, as a child, I was a great consumer of science stories on TV. You know, I grew up um, in the era of you know, the classic years of Tomorrow's World and in the sort of 70s and QED and Horizon, which is obviously still going. And um, and, and I just was a total total fan, a real geek on these things. So i video them all. i have a huge video library of Horizons. i watch them again and again. And I I was really, really intrigued and inspired by these stories. And so I, I initially went into science myself and I th- assumed that was this path that, that this interest was going to take me in. And so I did a PhD in planetary science, as it turned out, actually, and um, used um, early space shuttle data from Space Lab, from STS-9, to map a mountain range in the south of Europe, the Sierra Nevada, and to look at its geomorphology, its tectonics, and tectonic history of Africa crashing into Europe, and so on. So, I had a sort of interest in space from that, that work I was doing, but even years before that, I was, you know, a child of... Sagan's original Cosmos and mm. series and it's lapped that up as well as part of my kind of TV diet and, and my dad had a great amateur interest in astronomy and uh, not a telescope but good binoculars and we go out and we look at the planets in the garden and mm. and I remember I remember Star Wars coming out in 77 the original Star Wars film and George Lucas's renderings of of, of these planets um, were something else on the big screen now, those are those you who were that right age to be kind of excited yeah. by that, its sort of up upwards. <laughs> we might remember that, that the, 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 the curtains would just move a bit more just before the film started. And then these epic sort of huge shots of enormous spacecraft and incredibly realistic planetary surfaces would emerge. And, and I think I kind of connected all this and just became absolutely fascinated by the geology of other worlds. So rocky bodies, I'm not a stellar physicist or anything, yeah. but interested in, in good old rocks, but planetary <laughs> geology, more, yeah. more than just Earth. So so that was where my kind of path was taking me. And then during the PhD, which I, looking back, kind of loved doing, it was a great lucky time in my life in a sense, and I had the freedom to explore other things. I realized that actually what I really loved was storytelling and telling other people's stories. And I, I just didn't have the patience to sit largely on my own, which is what sort of geology can be, quite solitary, you know, mapping or just doing computer work on your own for years on end, just to come up with one eureka moment that would kind of, you know, might not ever happen. Mm. Some people go a whole career and don't have a eureka moment. So I I suddenly thought, well, wouldn't it be great? Because what I've really loved about my childhood is actually these stories of other people's eureka moments so maybe do you know what i'm what i should be doing here is telling stories so i started writing to people in the media at the time i mean quite well-known people including david attenborough who actually wrote back to me funnily enough and gave me some advice which was you know to start as a researcher and on tv shows and so I began in radio after my PhD, and I was in London, and um, it was just easy to go and buy a tape recorder on the Topman Court Road and find stories and go out and record interviews, and you could be, be a kind of lone operator and pretty much sort of earn a living, a little one anyway. And then in '97, um, I was introduced to the team making the Planets, which wow. had just started on for BBC Two, one of the first big landmark series that BBC Science Department, as it was then was doing and i thought my god i've got to get a job on this this is my dream job you know so i i did everything i could to get on that show and managed to kind of persuade the series producers to take me on and then i just worked day and night seven days a week for two years pretty much to make that series as great as it could be talked to about a thousand planetary scientists during that period and it was eight episodes and i worked across all of them pretty much and um uh, yeah, and that went out. And incredibly, it's still, almost 20 years on now, it's still playing on Netflix to, yep. with, with audiences. It's wonderful, a really thrilling thing. And then,
0: But it still looks good. I mean, it's still, it's, it still...
2: It seems to have stood yeah, the test yeah, yeah. of time, and of which so much of my work I look back on and I think, oh, blimey, did I really... What was I thinking, filming it like that? <laughs> you know, It's it's such a fashion, zeitgeisty thing, film yep. and television. Um, and yet somehow The Planets has really stood that test.
0: Why do you think that is? Is that, is, is that because it's... Because, in some ways, it was quite iconic, wasn't it the planets? It was the first time that that, that, that attempt to kind of recreate planets in like in, in that digital way or I don't was it digital in fact
2: yeah little yeah bits of it were. We built our, I remember we hired our own animators and built an in-house graphics team that were just devoted to that series. We did a lot of um, physical effects work as well with it with cloud tanks out in West London in Acton where. Uh, BBC outside broadcasts, where then they had these big spaces, and we set up big cloud tanks for the gas giant planets and filmed those in slow motion stuff, and then composited all of that together and created these beautiful things. And yeah, I mean, I think you look back and go, "Wow, that graphic still stands up." Those those Venera probes descending into Venus still look okay. It wasn't yeah. embarrassing <laughs> twenty years on. But we did a good job.
0: Yeah, because there's one thing I like about it particularly is um, is the music. Is it Jim Meacock, who was mm. the uh, composer there? I think he did a brilliant job on creating those those atmospheres, which are absolutely essential for that emotional element to the to the series. That was superb.
2: I You're think. right, the music was a very important part of that. And interestingly, the whole series begins in 1930 with um, Holst's The Planets mm. and the Neptune suite, I think's the, 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 the song that's playing, the tune that's playing. And and of course, that was the, the last planet that he composed about. And then Clyde Tombaugh's work leads to pluto shortly after that and so it kicks off with this musical moment you know which really is very stirring it's such a moody piece that that movement and jim did a great job following on from that and the other rest of the music is in that vein actually a
0: lot of it Mm -hmm. you've even done i mean you've even done a bit of sci-fi stuff is that correct with a for andromeda and a few a few others like that yeah
2: yeah i worked on on that as a consultant a for andromeda which um uh, of course was the BBC's remake of it in the early two thousands, I guess. Mm. Um and um and that was done, I seem to remember, as live almost. It was uh it there was there was quite a mass. I did, I worked a bit on that, the, again the remake around the same mm. time, and A for Andromeda. I think A for Andromeda was done as a live drama, which was very much more exciting than it could have been. <laughs> yeah. Because there's a lot of potential things going wrong, uh, I remember. Um but yeah, and before I think the, the reason I got those gigs was that I'd um I previously produced Space Odyssey, I seem to remember it was about the same time for the BBC, which was um this Voyage to the Planets thing from the makers of Walking with Dinosaurs. It was kind of the working title was Walking with Spacemen for for most of the time we were making that. And then um and then it, it became uh Space Odyssey towards the end. The, the Joe Ahern wrote it, I produced it, and that was Imagining a future where, you know, or or a a present, in fact, where the 60s had continued at that pace and we hadn't stopped at the moon and we'd just over-engineered even bigger, you know, interplanetary craft Mm. and taken humans on a tour of the solar system and what would have happened. And I I remember our lovely golden rule for that series was we would not break any laws of physics.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So we designed it like uh, a real mission and uh, we mapped out all the orbits of the... um, uh, of the planets as they were going to unfold and then, and then the trajectories of the spacecraft and we worked with Astrium to build the spacecraft and, you know, it was pretty serious stuff. It was some high-end engineering. It felt like a real mission we were mm-hmm. we were planning. It took two years and a lot of work.
0: Wow. Because that, that series stands up, I think, very, very well because I watched the, the DVD recently and it's still a great story and I think the visuals are, are brilliant because it, the date of its production was... 2004 that yeah, came so that's out
2: now so nearly 15 years, 15 years
0: and 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 it looks really really good so where's my life going
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that seems like in my head 2004 is recent yeah. uh, moving on to the to, to the to the uh, film that you're talking about tonight uh, the, the neil armstrong um, he, he did you start that project just after he died was that the
2: yeah so um so the thing about that film was that you know there's a mixture of film projects in your life that where some of them you work really hard on for years to get going and then others just sort of land in your lap and so in the summer of 2012 I think I was I think I was working on a Voyager film with Dallas Campbell actually mm. um, to celebrate there was a Voyager anniversary that year I, I guess and it was just announced that it was I think Voyager one was pushing out of the heliopause because yeah. we had a heliopause then as well so we we're making a film about that And then it was announced that Neil had died in August that year. And and the phone started ringing uh, for me. I think I was up in Scotland editing the Voyager film. And um, suddenly there was this huge interest in doing some kind of biopic about him. And I'd made Shadow of the Moon um, a few years before that and got to know the Apollo astronauts quite well. And we courted Neil for years for that film and he never took part in it. But what it had done was, I think... It had um, opened doors with the other Apollo astronauts that mm. meant that they kind of respected uh, me and my colleagues as filmmakers for the done shadow. And the other thing that counted in our favour, I think, is we had not hounded Neil to the point where he was just like, in a corner mm. yeah. and forced to do it. We'd said, look you know, this is a polite invitation. We, I think we asked him a couple of times. And then we said, it's entirely your choice. We respect that and mm. moved on. And in fact, Shadow of the Moon somehow says more about him without him in it than if he was in it, I often think, yeah. you know. So so we, so we, I was phoned up by another production company and they, they said, look, do you think you can get something together on Neil? Um, I said, well, what's the deadline, the, sh- the budget and stuff? And this was September and they wanted it for Christmas. So... You know, typically a, a film like that's going to take six to eight months to make if, it, if you do it quickly. Ten weeks was really tricky. And so, so the, I remember on the first day we had no access. We had n- no relatives sort of signed up to it. Not even any way of getting through to some of them. And time was ticking and, and and we should have been editing for ten weeks. So it was quite a scramble to get that together. And scramming sort of six months work into ten weeks was pretty stressful and I seem to remember at the time I was I was also finishing a book on the lunar rover and um, making another documentary for <laughs> Radio 4 about the moon and uh-huh. oh god it was really st- really stressful <laughs> but we, yeah. got, we got it across wow. the line. Wow um, that's
0: amazing so with, with all the, the Apollo stuff that you've done you presumably you've, you've, you've interviewed quite a lot of the characters uh, involved or is, it, is there any kind of one that you've got a real fond memory of?
2: Uh, yeah, well, Mike Collins, um, who we first met making Shadow of the Moon, and then I interviewed again for um, the Armstrong film, uh, is such a sort of sparky, wit, and um, and he's he was such a good is such a good writer that he he speaks very well as well. He's hmm. deeply thought out these things, and he's so eloquent and and a terrific storyteller, so I would say you know he he stands out and and I think from shadow again Alan Bean was just such fun to spend time with he had such an interesting take on life that I really kind of enjoyed his company but I tell you what making this film about Neil it was a great treat to meet his brother and sisters a June and Dean and to spend a day hanging out with them and find out a bit more about him from his perspective the, the wonderful insight which is in the film is is the kind of man he was and that was right back to his childhood and that insight that they could give mm. about his upbringing and stuff was, I felt very lucky to be, you know, capturing that as an oral, piece of oral history, you yeah. know, if nothing
0: else. No, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of, obviously, the, it, these storytelling things are absolutely fantastic and you've you told some great stories over the years. Is, have you got any advice for, for our listeners, any of them? Thinking about becoming kind of documentary makers or space advocates in in general.
2: Mm, good question. I, I mean, I think to, to to make to make films that are um, emotionally satisfying to watch, you know, you you have to concentrate on the story and the characters, and absolutely nothing else matters. Mm. You know, and it's so easy to get carried away with other things and visuals and graphics often, yeah. and. None of those things matter, you know. If if you haven't nailed your story and your characters, the film is not worth watching. And so, you know, you are, I often get sort of billed as someone who makes films about space. I don't think I've ever made a space film in my life. I make films about people, oh, yeah. and it just happens that the people I sometimes celebrate in my films had this um, impact on human history and what they contributed to the exploration of uh, of, of space beyond the Earth. Mm. You know, and so. So for me, it's all about the people, really. Um, and the further bit of advice if you're interviewing anybody is that a good interview is when you shut up and listen. You know, you ask one question, you let the person answering think and answer. And often at the end, and you'll, you'll see this in some of the films I've made, you, you keep looking at them when they finished, and you don't say anything, you just mm. keep looking. And it forces them sometimes into a space where they think another thought and it's that thought they say after you would have jumped in and gone great thanks and next one (laughs) and that that is the quote you need and that you use in the film right so patience and silence are and listening good listening is is the absolute keys to interviewing
0: yeah I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna. Damn! Something else. <laughs> uh, no, I'll have to work on that technique. <laughs> so yeah, actually, I mean, the, there's something happening at the moment in in space. I think, and that's the this kind of new space race where we've got some like pretty iconic characters in people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. And are you are kind of excited about these space baron style space race? Do you think it's an exciting time?
2: Oh, undoubtedly. I, I mean, it, there's the the. I was just. I've just been making a film recently for PBS about a history of the rocket, and uh, I spent some time talking to Franklin Chang-Diaz, who's yeah, got one yeah. of the two people who's flown in space seven times, I think. Seven yeah. shuttle missions, amazing record. Um, and he's an extraordinary rocket scientist as well as, um, mm. as an astronaut and mission specialist. And, um, and he put it interestingly, he said to me that he thought this, that the rocket engine this momentum engine, which is essentially what it is, has been democratised. And this is this period we're living through. You know, if you look back to the emergence of it as a technology through the 50s and 60s, there was a total monopoly on it from the point of view of those that um, had the patents on it and and those that were building them, you know, and you could have counted all the players globally on one hand, you know, Hmm. probably just on a few fingers, actually. And um, now, you know, you have... That, that knowledge and ability to rapidly engineer novel, original rocket engines ar- around the world, there are multiple players now, whether it's the ones we've all hmm. repeatedly hear of, like SpaceX and, and Jeff Bezos' efforts as well. Or um, or the less well known ones like there's a company in New Zealand that are you know additive manufacturing, yeah. 3D printing their own the rocket el- engine. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and that's just one of dozens that are doing this stuff. Yeah, now. well,
0: China have got about six or seven yeah little startup engine companies here. Yeah, yeah. They have, yeah. you see,
2: and, and what's interesting when you throw that into the mix socially is that as a society, you know, it accelerates things far faster. And of course, the sharing of information in this age that we're in now that we weren't in the 60s. 70s so much is also um comes into play there but the exciting thing is then where does that go where does that line extrapolate to if you kind of apply those new rules to society mm-hmm. um and that's still you know of some debate quite whether you know it'll accelerate us back to the moon and on to mars i'm still skeptical about to be honest and for only one reason and that is that if you're going to hand these things over to businesses to do then businesses exist to make profit mm. and the thing about that is how do you monetize it now you can just about work out how you could monetize um, orbital low earth orbit leo's mm. um, tourism say you know because the ticket prices are you can you can take a top, um, you know a, a top end off that and that's your profit mm. going to the moon well you know richard Garrett's had his suborbital tourist flight on the table for some years now, and he's not sold those tickets. I mean, it's 200 million or something, isn't it? So fewer people, the market's smaller for that, right? Yeah. You know, and, and actually, you know, beyond that, could you, could, could you uh, imagine a landing for someone and a, and a walk where that was profitable somehow? Well, the business model doesn't exist yet for that. Yeah. And it certainly doesn't exist for, for, for going further to Mars. How would you make uh, your money back on that? And Musk's idea of, you know, you'd you'd sell tickets for $250,000, you know, like you could sell your house and go to Mars kind of thing, which is the pilgrim model in a sense, Mm. you know, which existed across the Atlantic and colonising America all those centuries ago, is is one thing that he would would say is the answer to that. But, you know, look, never say never, but that's not near future.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I sometimes think maybe it's the flipping of industry and, and having... Industrial processes happening up in space and the asteroid belt, but I still, yeah, like you, I still think that's a, a long, a long way off. And
2: even that, you know, to, to conceive of materials that are so valuable that the cost of retrieving them and returning them to Earth through the down the gravity well, you know, yeah. re-entering stuff, actually is profitable. I mean, I think it's still. Um, It's still a long way off. I mean, we would have had to seriously have depleted this planet and not um, had the ingenuity to come work on an alternative to the matte material in order for that to be the case. I think with things like graphene emerging, then the need for some of these other exotic materials may be disappearing
0: yeah i think i think you're gonna to have to go go down and do your uh, talk soon so i think i'm going to wrap this up and say thank you very much for talking to me it's been an absolute pleasure it's a
1: great pleasure for me too i've really enjoyed it thank you
0: fantastic what do you think about that jamie uh, it seems
1: like just such a lovely guy and as as we talked about what a body of yeah. work
0: yeah and i really liked his interview technique of not saying something back right at the end and then just waiting for yes. it it was really good that's that's uh, always helps. You can't do that over Skype well, though. You can't do it over Skype. You can do it face to face because you've got that kind of face waiting for something. But yes, we, we, we should try that out on it. I'm going to I'm going to try it out on the next interviewee. I'm just interrupting the show to remind listeners that it's Space Up London 2018 this weekend on June the 9th and June the tenth at King's College London on the Strand. Space enthusiasts will be brought together to discuss, present and learn about space with other students, professionals and some of the major players in the space industry and ace podcasters like myself. So I'll see you there this weekend. Let's get back to the show. So, space fact, Jamie. Do you want to hear it? Space fact. Let's go. Can a planet blow up? Ooh, now that's a question. (laughs) So I don't know why I found this rather amusing. No is the
1: answer. No is the answer. No is the okay, answer. A planet
0: can't just blow up. So if, for example, if you wanted to blow the Earth up, just like blow it up, you would need a ball of uranium about three miles across, and sink that down right. to the core, and then somehow start a, a nuclear react, a fusion reaction using that. But the problem with that is, of course, all the neutrons that are around in Earth itself would uh, just absorb the nuclear explosion and stop it in its tracks. Take that, terrorists. (laughs) So even if a terrorist could find a three-mile ball of uranium, (laughs) a (laughs) diameter of three miles, (laughs) that's a lot of uranium, which I I don't. Yeah, that's a lot of uranium. Then um, probably way more than there actually exists. Um, Then mm. no, you can't blow up the Earth. And even if you had that, you still couldn't blow it up. So, I think I'm going to go with no. You can't blow a planet up. What about you?
1: Well, that's answered. What about that? you? I'm going to say no. Going to go with you, Matt.
0: Okay. Well, about with a primordial black hole. Oh, and all that Hawking radiation. When it gets really, really small, it might it might have enough energy. Oh no! I'm going to say yes. You're going to say yes. Okay. <clears throat> Anyone else have any ideas whether you can blow a planet up? Then please write in.
1: You can blow anything up. If I've listened to this show and I've enjoyed it, mm-hmm. I guess I could go to iTunes and give it a nice review if I enjoyed it. Um, maybe I could, if I, if I felt I had a question, I could hop onto one of our social media outlets, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, <laughs> and leave a comment or, or query or question. Wow, um, but Matt, if I want to go, if I want to go further than that, mm-hmm. I mean, sure, I've subscribed to the podcast, but what about if I want to donate? If
0: you want to donate?
1: I, I want to just pitch in. I mean, how do I do it? Not
0: only is it simple, it's heartwarming when when we get patrons. Every little ping on our patron page makes me very, very, very happy indeed. And Matt, why does it help us? It helps us because we're able to do things like fly to cologne and interview tim peak yeah it's that absolutely. kind of thing it's that kind of thing it's just like wow but well, that is genius i
1: mean because it's our own money isn't it matt the rest of it
0: everything everything I'm, i mean <laughs> yeah this definitely <laughs> we're definitely not making a living out of the podcast but it, well i'll tell you what you can do is you can tell your friends and tell their friends and do the ghost to ghost hookup And uh, and yeah, and then and build the podcast. We have reached a a new high on the podcast listeners. It's going really, really well. Thank you very, very much for tuning in every single week and listening to us blabber on for hours on end. Thank you. And a special, special thanks to Jeffrey Marlam and Matt Gilliland, who are our producers, show producers, legends in podcast world. Matt, yes, and on Skylon level, are brilliant contributors to the show who always give some fantastic uh, stuff over to us are Bob Hodges, Richard Swain, Karel Sim, Erin Edwards, and Julio Aprea.
1: I would say that they're all excellent people. And if you want to join them, it's simple.
0: Pop along to the Patreon page. I mean, if you've got fear of missing out... FOMO. <laughs>
1: <laughs> then then get over to our Patreon page. No, in all seriousness, you're, you're all incredible and you're the reason that this carries on. So, without further ado...
0: It's quite likely, if you go over right now, you'll be the 40th patron. And we need to get 10 times more than that and... and We'll be making videos. This will turn into a video show, which which would be amazing. You get to see our faces. And the great news is, on the t- round about the 28th of September, so bookmark this, particularly if you live in London, you're welcome to join us for the 100th edition of the podcast at the British Interplanetary Society in Vauxhall. There will be bands, there will be drink, and there will be special guests and it will be a live video feed. So I can't wait for that. What do you think about that, Jamie?
1: That is going to be the bomb.
0: It's going to be the Uber bomb. I can't wait. I can't wait. You have been listening to the Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back Back into into space. (laughs) Jamie, you've egressed out the hatch. (laughs)
1: I just, have over, you... I just aggressed all over I just aggressed all over myself.
0: Have you aggressed
1: your mind? I'll tell you what I'm gonna do, Matt. I'm gonna make a lovely cup mm. of egress
0: right now. <laughs> I'm going to have egg and gress. Oh, beautiful.
1: <laughs> Alright, Space Freaks. Look after yourself. See you soon. And each other. Bye
0: podcast. Bye.